Okay, last week, uh, a little bonus here. This, we're going to be in Matthew 18 if you want to go there. A little bonus material this morning. So last week, I had a couple of different people ask me, and that's always a sign I probably need to say something about that verse. Uh, James 4, 5, which talks about, and it depends on the translation you have, uh, it, it uses this word that the Spirit that God has given us, uh, the Holy Spirit living in us, it has jealousy, or some translations will say a spirit of envy or something like that. So there are a couple of people that are like, whoa, whoa, you just kind of skipped over. What's going on there? And, and if you read that, that passage and you kind of get into that, it's, it's it, you know, Jesus, or, or James rather is talking about friendship with God and friendship with the world and trying to hold on to both of those at the same time. And so essentially what you have is this, you know, God has given us so much. He's given us His Son on the cross. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God lives in us. And so there's this sense that God wants the affections of your heart. And, you know, those are the best Words, I mean, available in human language to express. It, it, it hurts God. It grieves God uh, when he's done so much and loved us so fully. And we're like, yeah, but I want to. I, and I was kind of thinking, you know, imagine that, uh, you know, Jamal, when you finally put the ring on her finger a while back, imagine that she already had a ring on her finger. Yes, Jamal, I want to be engaged to you. I want to marry you, but I've also got this other guy over here. I mean, it'd be like, whoa, that would be more than weird. That would hurt deeply. And so, you know, I would just encourage you to go back and read that. But that's really what's going on is James is just leveling with us. God lives in us, and it grieves his heart when we have other loves in our hearts. And obviously, we're supposed to love people, and we're, but, but when we put other things right up there with God, and God is forced to compete with all of this other stuff, uh, that grieves him, and it causes some envy, it causes some jealousy. He wants you. He wants your heart for himself. Well, you probably saw that, I mean, if you've turned on the news this week or followed Twitter this week, you've probably seen the story of Michael Rotundo. I mean, it was all over the news this week. Um, he is the 30-year-old guy whose parents have been trying to kick him out of the house for a long time now. I mean, not just kick him out, but they're like, here, we'll, we'll pay for your move. Just get out. It's time for you to get out of our house. And he would not budge. And so the Rotundo family, this is the story. You probably saw this on the news or saw images or heard, heard them talking about this. They took him to court. The parents took him to court. And a judge decided this week, yeah, you got to get out, buddy gave him 14 days or he will be forcibly evicted from his parents' house. That is just the kind of story that makes the news these days. It's, it's absurd. It's family-related. It, it, I'm sure it grabs, you know, uh, clicks on the Internet and everything. And, and it is, when you think about it, it's truly, it makes us giggle. I mean, it's a failure to launch, launch story, but, but when you kind of think about it, it kind of makes you sad, right? Because here's this family whose drama, whose conflict, obviously is bad and has been going on for years. And then the fact that this is in all the, in all the newspapers and all the news shows that their kind of private family drama is, is being you know, laughed at and, and ridiculed, it's just really sad, isn't it? And it got me to thinking, I dove into this a little bit this week, because I thought, you know, we haven't even talked about these guys in, in the past seven, eight weeks of this series, but that most famous American 
family feud, the one above all others. And if you're American, I know that you know this feud. It is the Hatfields and McCoys, right? I mean, they went at it for decades. Uh, movies have been made about these families and, and, and TV shows and dozens of books written about this. And, and the feud went on for something like 125 years. And it was interesting because it was a short time ago that in Pikefield, Kentucky, um, on a Saturday afternoon, the two clans actually gathered and signed a peace treaty, a, a document declaring an end to their hostilities. But the story goes that everything started back in 1878 when Randolph McCoy stole one of the hogs of the Hatfield family. And they called it the Hog War then for a few years, which the McCoys ended up, uh, I'm sorry, which the Hatfields ended up winning when one of the McCoy cousins chose to side with them. But the hostilities started boiling, and finally in 1882, um, it resulted in the shooting death of a man named Ellison Hatfield, and then just cycle after cycle of retaliation and violence. Within a decade, 11 family members of the Hatfields and McCoys were murdered, and since then, there have been court battles over timber rights, over cemetery plots, over all sorts of stuff, and... Finally, they got together a few years back. These two families, descendants of these two families, gathered and signed this peace treaty. And I had never read this before. I thought this was really interesting. So I just wanted to read their peace treaty that they signed. We do hereby and formally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families, now and forevermore. We ask by God's grace and love that we be forever remembered as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom in America. And while this treaty was largely symbolic, you had at the signing the governor of West Virginia and the governor of Kentucky, and this was televised nationally, so it was kind of a big deal. Now, I hope you don't find yourself ever, ever in your life in a situation like that one, like that, like that violent um, series of, of battles between the Hatfields and McCoys. But as we've talked about since day one in this series, if you are in a meaningful human relationship, you will deal with conflicts. The degree will vary, but you will deal with conflict because the only option that you and I have in this world, if we're going to have relationships, is to have relationships with other sinners like ourselves. And so there will be disappointments, there will sometimes be betrayals, there will be hurts along the way as we relate to other sinners like ourselves. Now, if you haven't uh, been here, if you're visiting today, I would encourage you to go back, either subscribe to the podcast or go back on YouTube or on our website and watch the previous lessons because this morning really kind of needs that other buildup where we've talked about the nature of conflict, where we've talked about the role that we have been called to play in con conflict before we jump right into the nuts 
and bolts, the kind of what to do when you're in a conflict. So please do, if you get a chance, go back and listen to that. So we know this. We live in a world of conflict, but more than that, we live in a world that glorifies conflict. I'm talking to you, America. I mean, the movies that we make, the songs that we listen to, the books that we read, not only have conflict as a theme, because every story, good story, has conflict, but they glorify, they celebrate awful ways of handling conflict, right? I mean, sarcasm and, and, and litigation and comebacks and violence and, and just getting louder and, and berating other people. Those are some of the celebrated tools of handling differences in our day and time. And for what it's worth, you may have heard this before, uh, probably not news to you, but the USA has more lawyers per capita than any other country in the world. Now, hey, we need good lawyers. We do. Um, but it's just interesting that, that we love to jump to litigation uh, more than just about anywhere else. And there are lots of ways, obviously, there are lots of ways you can deal with conflict. Some of them are better, some of them are worse. Uh, but our culture seems to, to kind of embrace the worse side of that, the less ideal ways of handling conflict. So, Maybe there's a better way to handle hostilities than taking someone to court or hitting them with a zinger or hitting them with a left cross, okay? Jesus, Matthew chapter 18. Hear the word of the Lord. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything can be confirmed by one or two witnesses, or two or three witnesses, rather. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. All right, Jesus, he knows us. I think he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he, he understands sin is a part of the world, sin is a part of us, and we're going to deal with these hurts and disappointments and these betrayals in our relationships. And so before we dig into this wisdom of Jesus, I want you to just notice embedded in the text, in fact, in the first three words, who is this text for? It is for believers. That's what Jesus says. I'm talking to you, my disciples. And we are people who live in Christ. We are people who have incredible resources from heaven because of our connection to Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Christ resurrected from the dead, we are connected to him, and Jesus reminds us, before we get in the nuts and bolts, you guys are connected to me. You are believers. And so we have these resources, don't we? And so we can choose to blend in with the world, with the way the world tends to handle conflict and celebrate the wrong ways of handling conflict, or we can choose to live in our God-given identity. We can be the new creation that the Holy Spirit is working out in our lives. Those are our choices 
So now let's go to a t- something I read this week. It was, a, it was a great book last year by Trevin Wax, and uh, he, he's a gifted author, and I wanted to share some words of his about this kind of choice that we have. He says this, The only way you will ever be able to withstand the hatred of the world is if you are immersed in the love of God. The only way you will be able to live without the approval of others is if you are assured of God's approval of you in Christ. And I love this part. The only way you can stand against the world when everyone is jeering you is to know that God is there cheering you on, calling you His beloved child. Unless we are overcome by the love of God, we will be overcome by the fear of man. Yeah. So Matthew 18, this is the quintessential teaching of Jesus on handling disputes. And he begins by reminding us, you're mine. (laughs) He begins by reminding us, you're believers. You're my people. You're part of this everlasting kingdom. And so he calls us to be peacemakers who see conflict not as an accident to be avoided, but as an opportunity to be embraced. Now, implicit in Matthew chapter 18 is this. In order to resolve conflicts, we must make the choice not to ignore real issues, okay? Real differences that we have. That doesn't help. And that is not what Christ has called us to do. Now, there are times to overlook small offenses, small grievances, and to just move on without hanging on to those. But then we have this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18 when we're dealing with a situation that's, that's one we can't just turn loose of. So how do we know when we are to just move on and overlook and when we are supposed to engage the other person or the other people in a straightforward manner and we know there's going to be some tension there? How do we know that? Well, there's an author, by the way, this guy, everything he writes on conflict and peacemaking is great. His name is Ken Sandy. And so we have uh, some questions that he wants us to ask. This is from, from his book about resolving everyday conflict. So just listen to these questions. Here's kind of a, a filter you can use to kind of de- make a determination here. The first question is this. Is the conflict damaging your relationship with someone? Okay, that's on your outline as well. Is the conflict damaging your relationship with someone? You know, if it is, probably shouldn't be ignored, Right? Is the conflict harming others? Are there people just being ground up by this? Is the conflict hurting the offender? And then that final question is this. Is the conflict dishonoring God? Those are the questions. And there are a lot of offenses, a lot of slights, A lot of grievances that just should be overlooked. But if you've got a situation in your life that has developed to the point where the answer is yes to one of these questions, then probably you need to look at something very seriously uh, like Matthew 18 and follow what Jesus teaches you on this 
because people are going to get hurt if you don't. Issues are going to go unresolved if you don't. So incredible wisdom. I think you could just see that as we were working through that text. Incredible wisdom from Jesus about how we handle conflicts. For starters, he urges us to be prompt, to not delay it. Um, We need to deal with issues in our relationships in a timely manner instead of letting things fester and grow and get worse. So be prompt would be the first bit of advice there on your outline this morning. Conflict resolution, according to Jesus, it should be sought quickly. And can I just say, this is probably the part of Jesus' teaching that we ignore more than any other. We delay. We hope it goes away on its own. We postpone. And Jesus is telling us, well, the verb that he uses there in the text, the first verb that he uses, it's not sweep. It's not sweep the conflict under the rug. Pretend it's not there. The first verb he uses isn't run. Run away if there's a conflict. Get away from it. The verb he uses is go. That's the verb he uses. Go. Go and deal with it. Go to that person immediately. If you've been wounded, if you're involved in a situation where you have something against someone, Jesus says, go ASAP and deal with that. And this is important enough that he, in the Gospel of Matthew, he has already addressed the same idea. Matthew chapter, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar, so we're at a church service here, in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Here's the word, go, go, and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Then another motif here in the next verse. When you are on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences what? Quickly. Settle your differences quickly. So those are the teachings of Jesus there. Two very different settings. One at church. uh, One on the way to the, the courthouse. In both situations, the advice is to settle issues quickly. Um, You're at the temple getting ready to to make your sacrifice, and you remember that somebody has something against you, drop it, leave that area, go and make things right with that person before you continue with your worship. You're on your way to court, and and the advice is, don't even get to court. Don't even get in front. Settle it on the way. Settle matters quickly. Now, this is interesting, right? Right? I don't know if you notice this, but in one text, in Matthew chapter 5, you are the guilty party. You are the one who has caused offense. And you remember, this other person has a beef against me because I wronged them, or they think I wronged them. And then in Matthew 18, it flips around. Jesus goes this other way. He says, if someone has offended you. So this time, you, at least you think of yourself as being innocent. Someone else has hurt you. And the interesting thing, really, is in both cases, Jesus says, you, my disciple, child of God, the responsibility is on you. Whether you have offended or whether you have been offended, get in there and take care of it. Go. Resolve it. Be prompt, be quick, take the initiative. Number two, so be prompt, be personal, be personal. 
Difficult conversations are best handled face-to-face, not Facebook-to-Facebook, right? And he says this in Matthew 18, 5, Go privately, go privately, point out the offense. Years ago, you know, conflict couldn't be handled electronically. Couldn't be handled Facebook-to-Facebook or handled by texting or handled by... There were no other options, by email or whatever. And then we started sending letters to each other. Then we started making phone calls to each other. Then we started sending emails and we started texting and then we started tweeting them or tweeting about them. And while we have a lot of great communication tools available to us today, Jesus could not be more clear here. The healthiest way to manage a difficult situation, to resolve conflict, is face-to-face, and that still holds up 2,000 years later. Now, you may have heard this, uh, that 90% of communication is nonverbal, right? Heard that in college, and I've seen that confirmed over and over. And nonverbal just means it... 90% of what you communicate does not involve the words that you choose to say. It may involve your facial expression. It may involve the volume that you use. It may involve the inflection of those words uh, or the gestures. Or it, it involves a lot of things other than those words that you choose to say. In fact, Dr. Jeff Thompson wrote this. The belief is that 55% of communication is body language. 38% tone of voice, 7% the actual words that are spoken. It's probably something like that. I don't know about the math on that, but it's probably something like that. Just basically saying you are going to be a lot more effective person to person than sending a text or an email or something like that, especially when important things are being discussed, when emotions could potentially be high, where sin may have been committed. Electronic communication is not your best option. So face-to-face, that's what Jesus teaches But it should also be discreet. You just heard that word privately from Jesus. It should be discreet. Uh, We aren't to broadcast our grievances and hurts to the world. Uh, When we have been offended, we go privately to that person and we talk about it. When we've been on the receiving end of a hurt or offense, uh, either we've caused it or we've received it, same thing. We go privately. We talk about it with that person. And so beyond being personal, this is the next thing. Number three on your outline, it should be private. It should be private. It's best handled when we talk person to person, not about the person. I mean, he says in verse 5, if a fellow believer hurts you, go. Tell him. Let him know. Go and tell who? Your friend group? Go and tell who? You know, your, your Twitter followers, your Facebook? No, that's not who you're supposed to talk to. You're supposed to talk to that person. Jesus says, go and tell him. If at all possible, it should be handled privately between those two who are actually involved. A good rule of thumb, by the way, if you want to praise someone, feel free to shout it from the mountaintops, to praise publicly. If you want to criticize someone, go privately one-on-one. Criticism in private, praise in public, because ultimately with criticism as disciples, what we want to do is help someone grow is help someone be more like Jesus, right? And so criticize in private, praise in public. So let me ask you this, moment of honesty. I want to see a show of hands here. If you have ever in your life 
talked about someone before you talked to someone, would you raise your hand? Hey, we got an honest group here. Thank you. We all do that. We all have done that. Talked about someone before we went and talked to someone. And so you may be thinking, okay, so I've done all of this, Gordon. You know, I've, I've gone to that person. I've kept it private as hard as it was. Uh, I've done that. I've talked to that person. We've had a face conversation. It didn't go well. What now? And this would be number four there on your outline. Partners. You need partners. Mutual friends. So when the conflict goes unresolved or continues to escalate, call in trusted and mutual friends. I would put a circle around that word mutual. You both know them. You both respect them. Uh, these guys can sit there and help broker this, help bring reconciliation. Jesus says this in verse 16, if you are unsuccessful, take one or two with you um, and go back again. So maybe there is a trusted friend, a sister, a brother in Christ who can get in there and help. Uh, and hey, let me say this. This actually works. I have seen this personally firsthand in churches, in different hemispheres, in, on different continents. This actually works. I've seen this here at Preston Crest where people got called in. Maybe the church got called in, as Jesus talks about. Elders have gotten involved and helped bring a resolution to a very difficult situation. So let me say something about the final comment of Jesus, because last week it was the envious spirit. This week, no doubt, you're like, whoa! At the end of all this, if it doesn't work, I am to treat them as a tax collector or treat them as a pagan oh my goodness what's going on with that so that's kind of the whoa what's going on this week and i would say let's talk about this because this is not repeat not a license from the son of god to say well i've tried everything else it didn't work now i finally get to treat jerry like the absolute trash that he is you're a pagan tax collector, and everybody knows it. That is not what Jesus is saying. First of all, is that, does that sound like something Jesus would say? No. It doesn't sound like something Jesus would say. We know Jesus doesn't want us to treat people unkindly. We know that. Um, and what the Lord has been saying in this throughout the different texts that we've been looking at in this series is there may come a time when you need to part ways. Sinner, pagan, tax collector. This is first century Jewish parlance for someone that you are not going to walk with. Something that you will regard not as a sister or a brother, but you're going to begin to deal with them as if they were a stranger, okay? It's not being mean to them. It's not being cruel to them. It's saying, we just can't walk together anymore. This relationship can't be like it was before. Basically coming to that decision. You've tried everything. You're going to agree to disagree. You're going to take separate paths. That's what Jesus is recommending, not treating people poorly. And Paul will actually uh, kind of take on this. If there's a situation in the church where there's a very important issue that the, the church has come to a conclusion on and someone just won't know. I don't agree with that. I'm not going to support that. Here's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, 15. So another kind of conflict situation. He says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet, 
Do not regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. So it's interesting. The intention is clear. The intention is restoration. The intention is that that sister or brother will kind of come to their senses. The intention is that there will at some point hopefully be a reconciliation. That's what we're after. Look, since we know that conflict will be inevitable, let's finish up by just recognizing conflict doesn't have to be destructive. In fact, it can be one of the most powerful forces for transformation and change around. I mean, it can be an opportunity. Uh, conflict can be an opportunity that gives you a chance to serve someone or serve other people as a peacemaker. They are in an hour of need. When they're, in, when they're involved in hostilities with somebody, they are in a place of need, and we get an opportunity to minister, to serve in the name of Jesus. Conflicts are also important because they, they bring to the surface issues Dilemmas, things that probably should have been addressed years ago but never were. And so they allow us to put a spotlight on those and work on those and come to resolution, come to some decisions on those things. And conflict is also incredibly powerful and important because it is a transformative tool that allows us to become more and more like Jesus, who was a peacemaker, who modeled this who when you were at war with God, when we, humanity, rebelled against God in our sin and turned our backs on the Lord, Jesus got in the middle. And in the cross, He bridges the gap between the two sides. He becomes, as Paul says, a mediator. In fact, Paul says the mediator between God and man. So maybe this morning you are not yet a believer, you haven't taken that step of publicly acknowledging your faith in Christ and, and, and just getting public with that and saying, I want to I identify with Jesus. You could do that today, accepting Him as your Lord and Savior, repenting of the sin trajectory that your life has been on and allowing Him to wash your sin away and give you a fresh start and the empowering presence of His Spirit in your life. You can be baptized into Jesus. We had a baptism last week. You can do that and begin that walk with the Lord and with your brothers and sisters here at Preston Crest. Or maybe you just need prayers. Just need some prayers about something going on in your world. Let's respond to God as we stand together.